what I do. Okay. Hey, well, welcome to the final message of our Losing My Religion series. And uh, to those at home, I'm glad you could join us. And I pray that also for you at home that you've been experiencing some of what we have together in worship as we're connecting to God uh, as we gather together. So uh, this is the last uh, message in this series. And I started off this series five weeks ago by looking at some of the uh, statistics from our last um, census that occurred in 2021. And we looked at these figures. So we saw in, in 2021 that in our country, a decline of people who ticked the box, well, the decline of Christians who ticked the box on a Christian, 8% of people less than five years ago, but an increase of 9% of people that said, I've gone, obviously gone from Christianity to no religion. So in numbers, that's 1.1 million people in our country that said, you know what, I'm done with Christianity. Well, I'm done with calling myself a Christian. I'd rather not associate with that at all. So they tick the no religion box. Out of, just for your interest, out of those 1.1 million people, 95% of that 1.1, which is 1,050,000 people, they were from traditional churches. They were from the, the, the typical, from the Anglicans or the Catholics or the Unitings or the Presbyterians. That is the largest portion of those who have said, you know what, I don't want to associate myself with that anymore. And make it very clear, there's, I know there's people in those churches that love Jesus. So I'm not at all making a comment regarding those churches. I'm just identifying that the largest number of people who have moved away from religion fall in those traditional mainline churches. And so the question we're trying to deal with is what happened? Why did so many people walk away from religion? Why have so many people, and you may know them, you may have been one of these people a while ago, you've got a family or friends that have walked away from religion, walked away from church, maybe even walked away from faith. You know, and there's no simple answer to this question. And I can understand why people do want to disassociate with churches and denominations, given all the scandals and all the abuse that has come to the surface in the last two decades within the traditional institutions of the church. Perhaps, perhaps that's the reason people have decided, oh, I don't want to associate with Christianity. Perhaps they've had some experience with people who call themselves Christians and they say, you know what, if, if, if you're what a Christian is, I don't like that. I don't want that. So maybe that's another reason that people say, I don't want to be a Christian like you. Some people say, Jesus I'm okay with, but Christians, not so much. And so this series is trying, is trying to explore maybe another reason that perhaps why your family and my family may have ticked the no religion box. Could it be that they had the wrong expectation of what faith looked like? Could it be that they expected something and Christianity did, well the Christianity they were told about didn't deliver on its promises? Could it be that the product they received look very different to the promotional material that they saw. And a lot of people have been left disappointed, disillusioned, and many have walked away. So who's to blame? Maybe government, maybe education, maybe media, maybe crisis and tragedy and have led to people to personal 
pain and they're trying to figure out if this is what I've been told and it hasn't worked out, maybe that's enough. Maybe they've had bad role models. Maybe they've seen people in their work or families. And as I said before, they're there. that's what a Christian it is. Count me out. Maybe, maybe we are to blame in some ways. Maybe we've presented a postcard of faith that was incomplete. So, so if people feel they've been sold or done, they've been ripped off, they've wasted their time, wasted their money, maybe even wasted their life. Uh, much like this image of the, the three sisters that we've been using a little bit. Uh, and so people have gone and come to Christianity looking for the beauty of the three sisters and, and all they can find is the fog. And, and, and for those who have seen the three sisters, you know that it's there. But maybe if these people could, if, if that's all you've experienced of God is this fog, maybe you've missed the beauty that's found in the fog. Who's, who's been in the Blue Mountains in the fog? I tell you what, there's beauty there. There's something special there, even in the fog, even when it doesn't look like we expect it to look like. So maybe I'm thinking people have looked at Christianity and thought, this is not what I expected. You know, if they just look for the beauty in the fog, or maybe if they could just wait a little bit longer, the, the fog would clear and they'll get the image that they're waiting for. The book that we've uh, been working with is a book by Sky Jathani. I forgot to bring my copy. There is a copy, some copies at the help desk. If someone one copy, if you'd like to purchase it, it's a, I'd encourage you if you enjoy reading it, it's a light read. It helps explain some of what I'm saying in a, in a much broader way. He identifies five different postures or, how, or views or approaches to God. And all of these postures try in some way to get God's favour, to get God's blessing. The first one, life over God or under God. And I guess the easiest way to understand this, if you think about some of the tribal religions, if you've been to India or, or some of the other countries where religion is very tribal, you've seen the sacrifices, you've seen the little elephant statues or the Buddhas or the, or the monkey statues, you, you, you've seen the food they bring to the idols, you've seen the, the flowers they bring to their idols. Now this is not, this is, this is current, current day, I'm not talking about you know, ancient practices, this is still happening today where people think if they can appease their monkey god or their or their snake god or if they can provide enough sacrifice and food and that things will go well that they'll, their, their crops will be blessed their families will be blessed their businesses will be blessed be blessed and so uh, that's the life under god where we can just do more to appease our god they'll be happy and as christians that also applies to us in some ways we don't have our monkey statues we don't have our our physical gods but sometimes we think if we can just live by the rules, if we can try harder just to do everything that God tells us to do, if we can just bring enough sacrifice, do enough stuff, then God will be happy with us. And if God's happy with us, then He's going to bless our business, bless our family, bless our finances, and everything will be okay. That's life under God, and that's not quite right. The next one was life over God, and that's most easily recognisable by people who believe that God doesn't exist. We call them atheists. They say God doesn't exist. The universe is, a, is just a product of science and, and, uh, and the Big Bang and all these type of uh, natural laws that were created. And that's how the universe exists. That's how the world exists. And uh, everything is governed by natural laws. And perhaps they could extend it further. Yes, we've got our natural laws, but then we've got our moral laws. Moral laws. If we can just be good, if we can just be kind, 
If we can just be nice to everyone, then our lives will go well. Karma will work well for us. Things will just work out the way they should because we're living a life over God. We don't need God. That's the, the second posture we looked at. And as Christians, for those of us who aren't atheists, that we are believers in God, we, even those who would call themselves deists that have some belief in God, this posture can creep into our lives as we try to live our lives without God. We can, we can dig around scripture and get all the principles for living and having a good family and tithing and finances and, and all this type of stuff. We can get all the principles from life, all the, all the laws and we can say, I'm going to live my life by the good book. And all, all the time we're trying to do good and we're trying to live the life by the principles, but we're missing out on God himself. And that's the flaw of the life over God posture. We, we simply can't organise our life around God's rules and expect that, God's go, that things will just go well for us. It's lacking in its approach. The life from God posture is when we can get from God whatever we need. The world exists to serve me. Businesses, fast food, technology, uh, everything exists to give me what I want, when I want, uh, online, on call. I mean, I, I can buy stuff. I did yesterday. Sam needed headlights for his car the day before. I ordered headlights from Amazon at 10 p.m. and they arrived the next day. How convenient. Everything exists to serve me, my timelines, my issues, my problems. And the problem with that is people, we, we treat people that way, but we can also treat God that way. That God is just there to do what we want. Uh, Sky Jephani would call him like a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. Jesus, I can come to you, you can solve all my problems, you can fix all my issues, and, uh, and then everything will be okay. And so you can just be, look to God to get stuff from him. The example we used was the, the uh, prodigal son. When the younger son, he took everything he could from his father, and he went and he wasted it. Even when he was away from God, his dad, he said, I can still go back to dad because he can then look after him. His servants get it better than I do. So he still approached his father with what he can get from him. And so that's the life from God. And last week we looked at life for God. In the prodigal son, there's two sons. Stories of two sons. The younger who had that life from God mindset, posture, and the older son who had a life for God posture. He thought if he just lived doing things for God, then God would notice him, that God would bless him, that God would protect him. And that led him to having a wrong attitude about God and a wrong attitude toward other people. And so over these last four weeks, I expect that you've been challenged. I hope you have. When I read the book, I was disturbed a little bit. I was challenged thinking, are there ways that I relate to God that may fall into those categories? And there's times I do. And I'm sure there's times that you may even find yourself in a position where, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching God from one of these ways. And all the time we're missing the point, which is the point of the series, is the conversation of how we can be with God. And so um, all these views, while not totally wrong, are just missing what God desires for us. And so hopefully you've been wrestling with that. I had someone come to me last week and said, Mark, can you give me a 15-second summary of what your next week's message would be like? And that was really tricky. Um, and so I'll, I'll get to that in a second because I can't do that. But we've been using the concept of an apple, an apple to try to understand what our postures can look like. There was the life under God posture, where the, if you were to cut the cosmos down the middle, reduce everything, what's important, life under God told us that God's divine will 
controls everything and hence if we can do the sacrifices we can appease that god divine will will work well for me we've got life over god where, where natural law is the center of the universe if we can live our life by laws and principles then everything will work well for us we looked at life from god where personal desire becomes the center of our universe everything exists for my desires and the life for God, we're global mission. We're all got to get out and do something and change the world, and which is all well and good. And these things aren't wrong in themselves, but I tell you what, there's missing. There's something missing in that posture. So as I try to explain what life with God looks like, because there was a question, a valid question, I want us to go back to the beginning, before sin and corruption entered the world, and perhaps get a glimpse of God's heart and God's original intent. John chapter one, verse one. John writes, in the beginning, the Word already existed. Now the Word, when you see the Word in capitals, we're talking about Jesus. Uh, he already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So according to John, if you were to peel back time and space, if you were to peel back everything that our universe has been built on, the very core of what we discover at the very core, it's not divine will. It's not natural law, it's not it's global mission, and it's not um, serving ourselves. What we discover is something, we discover that God is at the very center. God is at, in perfect relationship with himself. In the, in the verse in John, this, is, this verse and others is where we get the concept of our trinity. The, 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 the fact that God is three persons in one. And, and this posture is based on the view that relationship is at the core of our existence. Not the other things. Relationship is the very core of what God created. God with the Father, God with the Son, God with the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was wandering through Costco. Anyone meander through Costco? Those trolleys are incredibly difficult to steer, I've discovered. But as I was wandering through Costco, I noticed the trees. I'm not talking about the leafy green trees. I'm talking about what other trees, trees are there? Christmas trees. Um, I do know that our, our new assistant pastor loves Christmas. And uh, how many days before you put your tree up? First of November. Yeah, that's a bit early, isn't it? Do you think that's too early? He doesn't, he doesn't care. Early enough. <laughs> he only leave it up all year. Yeah. Anyway, so Christmas is coming. And for those who are interested, 105 days from today. Just to let you know. Happy days, Dave. Happy days. So, um, yeah, Matthew, in, this, in his story, uh, his telling of the Christmas story, talks about the angel who appears to Mary... And he ends up quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Thanks, Joel. You got that? You missed that slide, by the way. Yeah, you were sleeping. I saw. <laughs> Isaiah says, and Matthew quotes this. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to us and will call him Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. Both Isaiah and Matthew would actually put that thing in brackets. It's an interpretation of what's actually being said. And so I find this incredibly challenging to fathom. But I love it. God's plan from the beginning of time 
was a relationship with you and me. In his book, Jathani would write that relationship is the core of the cosmos. So if relationship is the very core of it, if, 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 if God's plan was relationship before the world began, when God wants to restore broken humanity, what does he do? He sends his son, he himself comes to be with us. He sent Jesus to dwell with us, to be present with us, to be accessible and available to us. Jesus came to show us what life with God can look like. And we know uh, that the story goes on through when Jesus returns and uh, in the end God sends his Holy Spirit to be with us. And I think Ali's going to touch on that next week when she preaches. You are now because... Well done. Good. Jesus came to show us what life with God can look like. As I said, this person asked me, give me a 15-second summary. And I said, it's not easy to answer that because I'll tell you why it's not easy to answer this. Because what I want to do, I want to point to Jesus and say, that's what life with God looks like. I want to do that. Look at how he lived with the Father. But, but I, I struggle to say that because it's the right answer. But unless we have the right posture, we're going to interpret this the wrong way. You see, as soon as I start, I'm going to tell you in a minute what Jesus' life with the Father looked like. As soon as I start saying them, you will be thinking, well, I need to do that. Well, I have to do this. I need to be like this. All of a sudden, we were, we, that's why I didn't want to do it. Because as soon as I tell you what Jesus' life with God looks like, you're going to try to, to replicate that and you'll fall back into the wrong posture of trying to do. What Jesus, I mean, Jesus had a life of prayer. All of a sudden, oh man, I don't even pray once a week. I only pray at grey at dinner time, if that. So as soon as I say that, you're going to start to, to beat yourself up or put yourself down. Jesus uh, understood scripture. Oh man, I don't read the Bible enough. I tried, a, I, I tried my Bible reading plan 1st of January. I got as far as the, the 1st of February, then I gave up. Or, or Jesus fasted. Oh man, I love my food. See, when you start to, and what I'm saying is these things that Jesus did wasn't in any way trying to get God's attention or acceptance or anything. He did them out of his relationship with the Father. Jesus understood better than anyone else that all that he did flowed out of his connection with the Father. Jesus knew that he was fully accepted, fully loved, and fully embraced by his dad. Jesus knew that God was with him. You can understand that on the cross, that's why when, he, when, when God turned his back because of the sin on Jesus, you can, you can see why Jesus cried out, where are you, God? He understands what it's like to be forsaken. He understands what, it like, what it's like to feel that God has turned his back on you. Jesus cried out to his father. Jesus was fully secure in his relationship with his dad. He knew that his dad wouldn't leave him even when it's hard. Jesus lived in constant communion with his dad. Jathani would write this. He would say, Wake up. There we go. He'd say, Only a life with God sees him as our true desire rather than a, a device, and only a life spent in communion with him can lead us to faith, 
hope and love. It's the life we were meant to enjoy. Only when we discover that we are created to be with God, not use Him to achieve whatever we want, that's when we start to understand the life that we're meant to enjoy. When we, I believe when we get a glimpse of who God really is, when we get a glimpse of His beauty, His wonder, and His grace, suddenly we, we don't want to try to use Him for our own purposes. He ceases to be a means to, to get what we want. He actually becomes what we want. There's a verse in, in Matthew, Jesus tells us a story, Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and, and sold, sold everything that he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he has discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. You see, when we get a glimpse of who God really is, when we get a, a greater understanding of His love and His grace toward us, I think things start to shift in our approach to God. As I, when we were singing that song, Run to the Father, sometimes we don't want to run to the Father because we're, we're not feeling good enough or we're feeling ashamed or we're feeling we haven't done enough stuff or read enough or given enough or prayed enough or helped people enough and we feel, God, well, I, I don't want to come to you. But I tell you, okay, if, I, if you knew that God would accept you no matter what, and when you come to Him, you would experience all of Him, hopefully that makes you a little bit more interested in running to the Father. And so this is what Jesus models to us when it comes to living with God. It's not a human form of religion based on fear and control. Hoping if I do enough, God will notice me, that, uh, that Jesus will help me in my exams, that, that Jesus will help me buy a house or get a deposit for a house, or Jesus will help me in our marriage or our problems or this thing we're working through. Jesus is not modelling that type of relationship with God. Hoping, that, hoping doing enough will just get his attention. Maybe if I've done enough, he'll help out. Through Jesus, we discover an invitation. We have an invitation to love and be in relationship with him. Now, this is really, really profound. And it's something I, I'm, I'm working on myself. I'm trying to get my head around daily what this invitation looks like. I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to fully wrap my head around it, but I want to. Because I'm invited to not just communication with God. And communication is great. We, we pray, we, we, we can live 24-7, we can pray, we can live a life talking to God. But there's a big difference between communication and communion. And if we can grasp that, if we can grasp that we are created for communion with God, maybe that, that, that fog will start to lift. And maybe we'll start to see the world a little bit differently. Rather than trying to use God in our faith and, and how we live our lives, trying to use God in a way that's going to make things work better for us or help us to deal with the circumstances, we discover that our lives are perfectly safe wherever you are. Whatever your situation, your life is perfectly safe in God. Whatever, wherever you find yourself in life, that you can rest in Him, that you can trust Him, that you can surrender to Him. In fact, that nothing can, separ nothing can ever separate us from the love of Jesus. Paul will tell us this in Romans. Paul says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? 
Who's ever had trouble acclimating? It's very easy for us to think, well, God doesn't love me. That, that I haven't done enough, I haven't pleased him. But Paul's dealing with it. it, it it's, it's a rhetorical question. Does it mean he loves us? Doesn't love us? No. If we are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death, what's the answer to that? No, it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. A few verses later, Paul goes on to say in verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither my fears for today or my worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate Mark from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate Mark from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible truth. If we can understand that nothing is going to separate us from His love. It changes how we do things. It changes, how, it changes our posture. From a posture of above, below, uh, uh, for or from, it changes us to a posture of surrender. That I can trust God no matter what. And it's from this posture of surrender and trust, everything that Jesus said starts to make a little bit more sense. When we live a life with God, we can forgive graciously because we've been forgiven. When we live a life with God, we can give generously. We don't need to worry about, have I got enough? Will I have enough? Do I need to, to do enough to get blessed? When we can, Jesus is saying we can give generously. When we live life with God, we are fully secure that God will take care of us. We can love extravagantly. When we live a life with God, we can love even what we would think is unlovable. Those people who have offended us, those people who have hurt us, those people that have betrayed us, those people that are doing stuff to us, we, because of our total uh, settling with God, our total understanding that He is with us, and that we are with Him, and that nothing's going to separate. I can love that person, and I can experience the love of Christ in that space. We can love extravagantly. We can serve sacrificially. You see, it's in this posture of surrender that we discover what Jesus discovered when he was baptized. Do you remember the story? Jesus goes down to the Jordan River and a, a Holy Spirit presences himself in the form of a dove, comes and rests on him, and a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved son. goes on to say that I am pleased with you. When we experience witness, when we can understand God is with us all the time, we can experience the fact and be reminded that you are His child. You are His child. That you are unconditionally loved. Unconditionally. Any conditions? No. There's nothing you can do that God's going to love you more. And there's nothing you can do that make God love you less. And lastly, you'll discover that you bring God pleasure and joy. You bring God pleasure and joy. Yeah, Mark, but I've done this. Yeah, God still loves you. And He delights in you. Yeah, He doesn't, he doesn't think much of what you're doing because what you're doing is keeping you from experiencing Him. It fills you with shame and, and all that. But you can experience His love and His joy and His pleasure. So it's in this posture we get to realize that God is more interested in you than anything you could ever do for Him. That God is with you right now. Whatever your career, whatever your accomplishments, 
Whatever you do for a job, whether you, uh, whatever you, wherever you go, whatever, you, whether you're a pastor or or working in a hospital, there's there's no delineation. God is with you to help you wherever you are. Whatever your career, whatever your family history, whatever your mum and dad said or did, or your relationship status, married, single, married again, look, it doesn't matter what any of your categories. God is with you right now. And I tell you what, if none of those things change, God is still with you. You don't need to fix yourself up so God will be with you. He's with you right now. And He's not going to leave you. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. Even if you mess up, even if you stuff up, even if you do stuff that you wish you'd never done before, Jesus says, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you in your trouble. I'm with you in your turmoil. I'm with you in your brokenness. I'm with you in your hurt. I'm with you in your pain. I'm with you in your emptiness, your loneliness, your longing. I am with you. And if we can understand that He's with us all the time, and we can rest in Him, and that He's brought us to a table of reconciliation, I think everything starts to shift. We don't need to do anything to manipulate him. To see us, to notice us, to bless us, or to value us. God is with us when we struggle in our marriages. God is with us when we're wrestling with with who we are and and where do I fit in this big world? What is my career and my options, my life? What am I going to do? Friend, God is with you in that space. God is with us when we're facing those challenging health situations. And God is with us in our loneliness or our grief. God is with us when we struggle with those unhealthy, unhelpful thoughts or habits or behaviours. God is with us when we feel we've let ourselves down, we've let others down, or we've let Him down. God is with us when we have doubts and fears and worries. God is with us even when our circumstances don't change. God is with us even when it doesn't feel like He's with us. Friends, that's always been God's plan. From Genesis to revelation. It's still God's plan. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. And his prayer was, I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father and I am in you. That they may be in us. So the world will believe that you sent me. Friends, Jesus prayed for you. And his prayer for you is that you would experience some of that relationship that he has with the Father. I said before when we read the passage in John, the, the concept of Trinity. We've talked about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. We, uh, as, as, a, as Christians, we, we've worked through script, scriptures to develop a doctrine of what Trinity is. Uh, three one, into one. But you know what? The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. I know that's a shock. That might be a shock to some of you. Um, it, it was actually developed in the 4th century as all the church leaders got together and tried to wrestle with what, how God reveals himself through Scripture. As God the Father, God the Son, and, and, and the Holy Spirit. But three distinct yet one body, one person. And so uh, as they wrestled with this word Trinity, the, a word they came up with was this. Thanks, Joel. Perichoresis. That's, a, that, that's one of the words they were trying to use to describe this amazing relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and those words, for those who, who know uh, first century Greek, uh, the, the word peri, like periscope is, a, is, a, is, is where we can uh, view things together. We can, we can view from under, you can view things above. 
And so he was bringing things together. So the word there actually means can mean a bunch of things, let me say. One of the words or combinations of words it means, thank you, Joel, is together and caresses a dance. And I love this concept. That one as, as they try to wrestle with how do we describe God? How do we describe the divine relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? One of the approaches was this concept of a, a dance that they have together. You know, God didn't need us to make himself happy. God didn't, God didn't say, well, you know, hey, Jesus and Holy Spirit, I'm a bit sad, we need someone else. God was totally, sufficiently in love and relationship with himself in the Godhead. In this state of perichoresis, this, this divine dance. <coughs> and what I love, I, the, the, the thought that I love, is that he didn't need us to complete him. But God wanted others to join in the dance. God wanted others to be the fourth person in his dance. And his dance of perfect unity and love and relationship and togetherness. And, and I love that idea because that means God's invited you and he's invited me into a divine dance. Into a divine dance when we can experience what Jesus said, that we would be in one as, as he is in one with the Father. That we can experience oneness and life and goodness and experience all that God is together with him. So Jesus came into our brokenness and gave his life upon a cross to make a way for us to be with him. Not just with him when we die, which is, which is the fullest experience of him. But we can be with him now. We can be with him at school, we can be with him with the grandkids, we can be with him at work, at the gym, at the coffee shop. We can experience him. We, we've already been woven into relationship, into this divine dance with him. And I love what, uh, I appreciate what Jenny said earlier, that it's an invitation. That invitation to be with him is extended to today. But it's our choice. Jesus said this, to the church, not, not to unsaved people. In Revelation chapter 3, he, he, he spoke to the church and he said, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And what will we do? I want you, I want you to get this. It connects back to communion. What will we do if we, if we allow Jesus in? If, as Christians, obviously as Christians, we can not allow him in. We, we can miss out on something. But I love this thought here, that we, and Jesus is here wanting to come and be part, to be with us. And if we open the door and let him in, we can sit together at a table prepared for us by his blood, by his body, that we can, we can enjoy him around a meal together as friends. That's the goal. That took longer than 15 seconds. I couldn't explain it in 15 seconds. That's why. Because the goal isn't all those things we need to do. And yes, let's look at Jesus and we get a glimpse of what life looks like with the Father. But how does it look like for you? 
What does it look like for you to be in this in this perpetual state of communion with him? I'm not saying reading your Bible 24-7, praying 24-7, living life, understanding that you are in him. He is in you through his spirit, understanding we can listen and walk and, and be led by him and experience him in our exams. We can experience him when we're, when we're struggling with our thoughts, with our identity, with our brokenness. When wherever, wherever we go, he is with us. Always. And my prayer is over this series that each one of us have got maybe a, a better view of God or a bigger view of God. That each one of us will learn together how we can be with Him. How we can experience Him. Maybe that all of us in some ways will lose our religion. We'll, we'll, we'll dispense and get rid of all those ineffective ways of trying to relate to God and connect to God and get Him to, to, to do and fix and, and help and... and that we'll just get rid of that religion. And maybe, over these last five weeks, maybe we'll truly find God and how much He loves us and how much He desires us. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank You for today. Lord, I thank You that we can gather here at Hunter or at home or online later. And Lord, I've, I've tried to express through my human words something of what it's like to be with you. And Lord, it's something that I cannot say I fully have got it right. And it's so easy for me to slip into any of those other postures. But Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we would actually discover that you are our treasure. That you are, you are the treasure that's worth buying a field for. You are a pearl of great value that is, that is worth selling everything that we have to own. And Lord, I pray for each of us. I pray that, that we would get such a vision of you, such a glimpse of your beauty and your, and your grace and your love. I pray for each of us when we try to figure out what, what faith looks like on this planet. Lord, I pray that we get such a, a wonderful revelation of who you are and who we are because of that. And that we would hear the invitation for us to come and enter into that, that relationship, that divine dance with the Father and the Son and your Holy Spirit. That we would understand what it's like to walk in communion with you. And experience what it's like to, to truly experience your will on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us to figure this out. Help us to have a posture of surrender. Help us to not to be so closed and so narrow-minded that we, we close our mind to the fullness of who you are. And I pray that through all of this that we would, we would be a people who know what it's like to be with you. And when you're with us, those other things, you, you just take care of them. So Lord, I pray you help us to, to consider these things. I pray your Holy Spirit will, will speak to us individually on how that impacts us. And Lord, that we would uh, walk out of here understanding that you're with us and you're never going to leave us. That we can turn to you and experience you at any time. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.